Where do we find anchor? Where do we find anchor? And the Christian church has a unique and powerful place to find anchor. And it's the only place where you'll find true anchor. And that is in God. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in our confession of faith that we've been making week in, week out for 2,000 years. Nothing has changed there. Nothing changes the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we find our anchor in this statement and in this part of the creed. And we also find it here together tonight. And of course, as we've heard and as we've prayed, um, we will be gathered with um, having cast different votes. If we're representative of the city as a whole, it's probably two-thirds one way, one-third another. And yet we gather together under one banner, the banner of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen to that. And as a community of faith, we are going after peace, and we are going after the things of God. So what I want to do tonight in this sermon is to inject hope. Inject hope. We're looking at the sheep and the goats. We're talking about the judgment of God, and I want to inject hope into our hearts. And I want to get to the heart of anything um, ever said by Jesus, which is gospel. That's what I want to do tonight. Um, but in order to get to that good news and to gospel news, we have to deal with our fears. We have to deal with our gut reactions to this issue and this, and this um, belief that we just all stood up and said we believe in, um, that God, that Jesus Christ will come again and he will judge. And he will judge the living and the dead. I just want you to take a moment and just establish in your heart what you think of that, what are the gut reactions to that. He's coming back to judge us. And how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel afraid? Does it make you feel happy or glad or hopeful? What's in your guts? Do we recoil at that? Is that something that we're okay to say in here but not out there? How is this good news on the streets of Fulham? How are we going to communicate this as good news? Because that's what we're aiming to do as church, is communicate gospel. Are we fearful of God's wrath? Or are we okay? Have we got a handle on it? And I would suggest that in some ways we should be fearful. We should have an appropriate fear of God Almighty uh, coming again to judge us. To do this business of establishing justice, we should have appropriate fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, it says in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the place to start uh, in terms of living our lives and, and, and living uh, thoughtfully. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of wisdom. Unless, of course, you don't believe in God, you don't have this state of faith to make. But in that case, everything is meaningless. Everything is up for grabs. Um, and do, so the question is, do we want to believe, if, if we're not sure about the God of wrath, what, what is it that we actually believe about him? Do we believe um, in a God who doesn't care to bring justice and judgment, who doesn't care to right things that have gone wrong, who doesn't care 
who doesn't care if refugees die at sea, who doesn't care if the rich exploit the poor. Is that the God we believe in? And perhaps that is the God we believe in. Perhaps we believe that God is aloof and unconcerned, but it's not the God of Scripture. And at every turn in Israel's history and in the New Testament church's history and in ours, we find um, that God meets injustice with appropriate punishment and judgment throughout history, including in Israel's life and history, including in the church. Jim Packer um, says that the modern idea that a judge should be cold and dispassionate has no place in the Bible. The biblical judge is expected to love justice and fair play and to loathe all ill-treatment of one person by another. But what I, I do want to say, I recognise uh, in our nervousness of God as judge, is our desire that no one get hurt and no one perish. We do not like that. We don't like the sound of it. We don't really want to see it happen to anybody. And that is good. And I would say that is a godly desire, it's a godly motivation, and actually it's the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A patience with and a concern for humanity rooted in God's love for us all. And that is a biblical thing. It's a Holy Spirit thing in your hearts that makes you go, don't want this to happen to anybody. Second Peter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's desire. That's a godly desire to hold in our hearts. Witness. As evidence of that, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus, who had done everything to deserve death. As he says to his other uh, fellow on the cross, we are getting what our sins deserve. We are getting appropriate punishment. God knows what he has done. But Jesus says to him, without a confession of faith, without a creed, without time to get down at the cross and rescue and visit the sick, Jesus says to me, I will take what you have said, I will take your repentance and you're coming with me to paradise. That is the mark of a God who doesn't want anybody to perish, who doesn't, doesn't wait for a full confession, uh, the, the right thing to say, the right deeds to be done, but takes that man at his very little offering of trusting God, and Jesus says, you're coming with me. Witness the running father in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. God never rushes to condemn. He only ever runs to forgive, to embrace, and to restore. So, mercy triumphs over judgment. Nicholas Walter Stubbizer is a theologian, and he said this, and I think this is also appropriate to grasp as we reflect on the judgment of God. When it comes to justice and injustice, he says that the injustice of God is not in punishing sinners for the wrongs they've done, but giving them what they do not deserve, which is grace. God's biggest injustice is his grace, giving us what we do not deserve. Unconditional love, forgiveness, repentance, acceptance, that running father rushing, rushing to embrace the wayward son. And again, the wayward son just turns towards hope. He doesn't have a chance to get out his apology. The son, the father has been waiting for that turning and he goes running 
God's injustice is his grace. So let's take a little, a little look at, at the text um, in more depth as we, as we focus now on the sheep and the goats. So the context here is, um, is Jesus speaking to his disciples. So this is not um, a, a discourse of Jesus on, on the mountain top or in the marketplace or in the public square, but he's speaking to people who know him and trust him, he's speaking to his disciples. And these people have a theological foundation, they've been to synagogue, things like that, so they have a framework to understand this. So again, Jesus is not uh, giving this parable to a broad audience of non-believers, you know, people who haven't even taken the first step towards faith. This is for people who are on the inside. Observations. And I've got a few of them, but I'll, I'll do them briefly. Firstly, all the nations, let, 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 let with me. Let me read verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. All the people and nations are treated as one before they are judged. Jesus is not a respecter of persons or of national boundary lines. He is Lord, he is Lord of all, and his kingdom is not of this world. So the people are separated out by Jesus, not by a national tribe or border or social markers or anything like that, but along ethical lines determined by him. And him alone. There's no jury, there's no you know, comparative, uh, supplementary, um, regulatory body. They are gathered by him and under his terms and conditions. We have one Lord. It's not Juncker, it's not Cameron. We have one king, one God, one boss, one legislator, and it's King Jesus. It's nobody else. Second, so firstly, all the nations are treated as one. Second, all the nations will be gathered and uh, and Jesus will be the one who separates and judges them, but not like, not like, as I said, these powers, but as the shepherd. And Jesus could have chosen many, many different metaphors for uh, ruling, for judging. He could have chosen lots of descriptions. He could have drawn from the whole of the Greek political sphere. He could have drawn anything from anywhere, but he chooses to judge like a shepherd, as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. One Lord, one King, one, um, one God, and he separates as a leader, as a guardian, as a pastor, as a carer. That is the capacity in which Jesus exercises his judgment. Okay? It's in his capacity as a shepherd, as someone who cares, as someone who pastors, as someone who is looking out for his sheep, for his flock. The sheep and the goats, all together, side by side. And I would like to draw our attention also to this distinction between the sheep and the goats. Because the fact that Jesus separates them out, sheep and goats, tells us that this distinction is not nebulous. It's not, ooh, you know, we're not sure which camp to put you in. It is to King Jesus. 
Jesus to the shepherd, to the judge, who goes right. It's easy for him. It's absolutely easy for him to tell who belongs in which camp. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows the goats. It's clear to him, absolutely clear to him. We don't need to worry that Jesus is going to get it wrong. He absolutely knows his sheep and he knows the goats. And he, and he divides them with ease. So he, he is the Lord, he is the judge, he is the king, he is the shepherd, and he judges in his capacity as shepherd king, as pastor carer. He knows what to do and how. He is utterly familiar with the hearts and the actions of each group. Utterly familiar. And we don't need to worry that it's going to make a mistake. Someone's going to get a birth in, in one camp or another that doesn't belong. He knows his flock, he knows his people. All our thinking and doing 
depends on these. It's as simple as that. It all comes down to love. So if we want to drill down into what it means to have a fear of the Lord, to reflecting on uh, what it means to um, trust in Jesus when it, uh, and, and say, claim that we, we believe he's going to come back uh, to judge. I'd like to just draw our attention again in the text, just to the nuances in the answers that these two camps give, and what, what is different about it, because they seem to say exactly the same things. Jesus says, they say exactly the same things. And the, 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 the difference is, so here, so here we go, so we have the sheep saying, when did we see you sit in prison? Now, if somebody says to you, you just won a million pounds, Tim, are <laughs> you going to say, uh, and they write you a check, which is good to go. You know, you could say, thank you very much, I believe you, I'll, I'll accept that, thank you very much. The sheep have had that offer, come enjoy eternal life, um, <laughs> come you who are blessed, come and take your inheritance. And the sheep, in humility, and in the work of repentance, I would say, they, they answer back, Lord, God help me, I'm not sure you got it right. I don't remember, I'm so sorry, I don't remember doing this. When did I do this? And it's a posture of contrition and humility and modesty. Lord, in all honesty, I'm not sure, did that, I know you've got been judged, I respect you've made me this awesome offer. When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? When were you hungry and homeless and angry and we rested you? The difference between that and the response of the goats, the goats, when did we see you? Is God, when were you ever in a position like that? What, what, what would you have been doing uh, sitting on the street begging for money? When, when were you ever, you know, sick? How, how, how would you possibly, how would you possibly have ended up in need? Or, 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 you know, dirty and, you know, um, exiled from your nation. <coughs> well, we haven't seen that. It's a completely different um, place of heart, a completely different posture of heart. Same question, but coming from a different place. And because we know that Jesus is the judge of hearts, the searcher of men's hearts, he's looking at the heart. Same questions, same responses. Different response, different judgment by Jesus because he knows what's going on in their hearts. Arrogant, unrepentant, carelessness by people who know him. They both call him Lord. The sheep called Jesus Lord, the goats called him Lord. Stanley Hauerbass says the difference, the only difference between followers of Jesus in the text, those who follow him, and those who do not know Jesus is that those who have seen Jesus no longer have any excuse to avoid the least of these. Those who see Jesus no longer have an excuse to avoid the least of these. That's how he judges. In Matthew um, 26, uh, and Matthew, sorry, Matthew 25, we're looking at um, the judgment that comes um, inevitably and the punishment that comes
justly to those who did claim to know Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his flock. And he reminds us that no matter what we say, the Lord is the searcher of hearts. He's looking for motivations and he's looking for love and he's really looking for love in action if we have a chance to do that in our lifetime. Now, I promised you gospel. So, <laughs> if you haven't heard it yet, what happens next? So there's this huge discourse uh, from Jesus and his disciples. Um, sheep and the goats, a number of other things. Let's remember where Jesus goes next. So he's delivered these teachings, powerful stuff, weighty stuff. But after saying all of this, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to take the punishment for all our sin. And with his dying breaths, he's going to call on God. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is grace and mercy. It's love and compassion for people who don't have a clue. This is a different, this text is really for the church. But the cross is for everybody who doesn't have a clue, who doesn't have any idea how much God loves them, who, who, who thinks they know God as a judge, but doesn't know him as a lover of their souls, doesn't know him as somebody who, who doesn't want anyone to perish. Jesus' response to the criminal on the cross, his response to all of us on the cross himself, is utter love and self-sacrifice, going out of his way to do everything to redeem us, to bring us home, to communicate his love for us, to communicate that mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, forgive them when they don't have a clue. And God will forgive them. Come and God forgive if people don't have a clue. I trust that Jesus, what he said on the cross, counts. I trust that that's God's heart. It's his desire. It's what he really wants to show people, whether in life or in death. We believe he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's impossible to anchor ourselves, I think, in, in this bit of the creed, in this challenging um, statement. Uh, if we don't believe, if we don't stand on everything that we've said leading up to that line, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was born of Mary, that he died and that he rose again. As Paul puts it uh, in Acts 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The good news is that Jesus is coming back. That is the best thing. Forget sheep and the goats. The best news he will come again to judge the living and the dead is that he will come again. Jesus will come again. Isn't that good news? The one we love and worship and are utterly indebted to with our lives. He will come again. Now it's time to stop, but will you permit me? It's the year of Shakespeare. I want to give you a poem. And um, 
This is not Shakespeare, but it's George Herbert, who was born within a year of Shakespeare. So we've, we've had that, and I love George Herbert. I'll try and do this back on camera. Reflect on this. So this is, this is 15, early 1600s. This is George Herbert's poem, Judgment. Almighty Judge, how shall poor wretches brook thy dreadful look, able a heart of iron to appall, when thou shalt call for every man's peculiar book, the book of life in Revelation, remember? How shall we brook your dreadful look when you call for every man's peculiar book? What others mean to do, I know not well. Yet I here tell that some will turn thee to some leaves therein, some pages in their books, so void of sin that they in merit shall excel. But I resolve, when thou shalt call, when thou shalt call for mine, that to decline, and thrust a testament into thy hand. And, and throw, I will throw a New Testament into thy hand. Let that be scanned. There thou shalt find my faults and thine. Grace. Amen.